This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. What are the outcomes we're looking for with our schools? And are we going to have a little bit of a wrestling match when it comes to achievement, achievement versus equity? I I, I like the idea of giving everybody equal opportunity. I think that's a priority. I think that needs to be a priority. I think it happens more now than when I was in school. I think that's good for your community. Um, And I don't think it should be diminished. Every child should have the same right to flourish in all their humanity. I do think when you say, well, what would help a person achieve great results in school? Some of it is the opportunity. Some, Some of it is the opportunity. And some of it is the effort they put in. Some of it is their circumstances. I don't know how to like like hollow out circumstances and make them equal. And some people have um, something. I think it's an acronym. I think it. I can't exactly remember. You know exactly all the all the details around it. Um, but it's it's called um, it, it's called a DNA. I think I think it's that. I think that's a factor right there that sort of collaborates all together and determines who you are. I do think smart people often have smart children. Now, there's no doubt that economic circumstance factors into educational results. And I wish it didn't, but it does. There's plenty of people that can't go to university because they can't afford to go to university. And we have to lower those bars and level those playing fields and all that good stuff. Absolutely, we should. But I see this yesterday that Ontario is going to hire more educators. Province hopes to improve the basics. They want the basics improved. Reading, writing, and math. Let's get better at those. Not because we're falling behind on the world stage. Not because of, of anything specific that there are targets that we're aiming to meet. But simply put, the pandemic and the restrictions surrounding the pandemic caused learning loss. Not much, not much to debate about that. Not much debate about that. And um, the other factor is, what's the goal of schools? Is it to provide a learning environment, give you the meat and potatoes, and anything else is a bonus? If you get out and you become more worldly, you become more educated, you understand how important community is, you get support, you build trust and relationships, all that stuff. Real priorities. Absolutely. There should be a link there. No question about it. But there are also those wondering about initiatives um, from school boards and whether or not there's just been a few steps too far with that. We've taken our eye off the ball for the basics and we're talking more about equity. Important It's no doubt it's important. Inclusion, absolutely also important and diversity. These DEIs, they're important. I don't want to kick them to the moon, not by a long shot, but I also don't want them to supersede. The basics. And there are some suggesting that maybe that's been the case. Stephen Lecce, the Minister of Education, said this yesterday about what he wants from school boards that maybe in all circumstances, a big province, okay, big, big place, big boy, big girl province we live in. In some cases, maybe we've taken our eyes off the ball. 700 trustees that are frontline involved in often operational uh, decisions, billions of dollars of investment, and they are... Uh, Um, responsible for literally millions of children. So if we can improve the governance training of those individuals, uh, we can ensure that the local school boards are much more effective 
uh, because there are too many examples in Ontario. There's some notable examples and many other small examples in the province where they're not, uh, I think, at the standards when it comes to governance uh, and using a more collaborative spirit when it comes to working to move the interests of kids first. So school boards are going to get reframed a little bit. I often think it's a shame school board elections happen when municipal elections happen, and you're you're not all that focused. I think school boards should almost have their own moment, but that's not going to happen. They'll be part of the municipal election umbrella. Stephen Lecce said this on John Oakley's show yesterday. We're going to say to school boards, you need to build a board improvement plan, essentially a plan, to improve outcomes of your kids. And I'm going to require boards to produce those plans in consultation with parents. And they're going to be held publicly accountable to their adherence and implementation of them. So, look, this isn't going to be easy. I think every parent would look at, at these scenarios and simply say this. Are you spending more resources on equity than anything else? Equity is important, but what's the balance? What's the ratio? It requires more personalized and targeted interventions. So if you have limited resources, it feels like schools do. And I can dig in all day on what the conservatives should should do differently about public education. I'm not a fan of a lot of what's been done, but you're going to have limited resources. The ergo, you'll spend less resources on education and learning. The education goal should be equality of opportunity. You cannot create equal outcomes. There just aren't guarantees there. So parents have a right to ask questions about this. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. I want to know what you want as parents from public education, but I want to know what teachers want to teach. And I bring this up because um, there's this concept of going back to basics, going very sorry for vegans out there. Um, I'm awfully envious. I can't do it. Uh, Meat and potatoes. There's meat and potatoes basics. Teach reading, teach writing, teach math. Teach my kids what I was taught. But we also live in a world, and again, I know people hate the word sometimes, but we have progressed and evolved in terms of opinion and seeking out equal opportunity. Now, equal opportunity is not equity. This has been documented a million times over. So should we be teaching the basics? Should we be teaching equity inclusion? Or in 2023, do we teach with a combination of both? Bigger hearts, more knowledge than we used to have, more forward thinking. What do you want from public education? And I'd love to hear from teachers on this. I think this is fairly simple that complaining, um, not complaining, but pointing out that just maybe, just maybe, there's uh, equity issues that have superseded the learning needs of students. Well, you get painted as a jerk and you get painted as ignorant, but you're allowed to advocate for your kids, not just your kids, our society and your community. I made the point. It feels like there's never been more incidents of, uh, of racist graffiti, of fights about race, of uh, challenging moments in classrooms and in hallways and in cafeterias. And wait for it, wait for it, wait for it. There's never been more instruction about anti-racism in schools. 14, 15, 16-year-olds get told, you're different than this person, and this person's different than you. And I want everybody to have a voice. And I want everybody to get the same amount of at-bats. And I want everybody to be able to weigh in with their opinion. But do you think for a second that there's nothing interrelated towards, let's do a ton of anti-racism education. 
and let's make the let's ignore the fact that we have more racist incidents in school than ever before. Maybe kids don't always want to get told that they're different. Maybe kids don't always want to get pointed out that you're different than them. So we're going to do this for you, but not for them. And then we'll do it for them, but not for you. Is that impossible? Am I out on, am I on the moon with that square jawed Canadian good looking astronaut with this opinion? I'm throwing it out there. I want basics taught. I want, I want equality in our schools. I want a level playing field. And some of that comes from tutoring and checking in on kids that don't have the same home structure that the kids in the best homes have. But what are we honestly trying to accomplish here? Comprehension is big. Can you read? Can you write? Can you add? Can you have conversations? Can you learn things? Can you evolve? All those things matter. But I think we look at it and we wonder a little bit, we wonder a little bit whether parents see a bit of an equity push and it's costing them and their kids the basics. We only get so long to do this. Are we going to spend more resources on equity than anything else? The equity is very personalized. Equity is very targeted. I, I mean, where's the lie in what I just said? So if you have limited resources, won't you spend less resources on education and learning? This just seems to make sense to me. What do you want from public education? I know what I want. And my ship sailed. I, kids are, are through elementary school. But I'm happy to hear from elementary school parents as well. Because we start sort of baking the cake in those years. Fairly obvious that that's the case. Linda, thanks for the phone call. You're on 640 Toronto. You go right ahead. Hey, morning. I, morning. I want my kids right back to the basics. I've got one son in high school. And I think, you know what, what I've seen, I'm sick and tired of spending money on tutors because he's not getting what he needs. My daughter went through a private school for specific subject, subjects because she wasn't getting what she needed. I'm tired of it. Like, they come out and they can't even cor- make a correct sentence, let alone an essay or a paragraph. What's journalism going to look like tomorrow? You know, I understand that students need to learn about all the inclusiveness, but that should come from home, too. We have a responsibility there as well. So I want them back to the basics. I want them to come out with the science and the STEM that they need and be able to form a sentence. Yeah, that's it, Linda. And and you're right. A lot of it, look, these used to be just about um, sex education debates. These used to be just about that. And now they're about allyship. And allyship's important. And understanding who's who's benefiting in a society and who's not. How do we level the playing field? Again, it's uh, all I can use is the sports analogy at bats. I want to get you up to the plate as much as I get up to the plate. I want to get up to the plate as much as some of you get up to the plate. That's it. That's it. But I do think um, school boards and you read the tea leaves yesterday from Stephen Lecce and he isn't wrong. Parents are telling school boards, let me raise my kid as a person and you teach them the curriculum. That's it. That's just it. Okay? I got a lot of issues. You know this with the provincial government and 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 their education file. I do. But I cannot criticize Stephen Lecce from saying, we're going to wrestle this back and the school boards are just going to get out of the way and let the teachers teach the damn curriculum. That's what I heard yesterday. Emma, you're a teacher. Thanks for doing that, first of all, and thanks for the phone call. Oh, hi. Good morning. Morning. Um, I... You know, we would get back to basics if we could have smaller classroom sizes. We can't teach math and language with, you know, 30 kids, you know, many with special needs and no support. 
Like, I, I truly think that the people, you know, Stephen Lecce needs to come into a classroom and see what's happening. It's not that the teachers can't teach math or literacy. We can do that very well, but we can't do it, you know, with so many kids with needs in the classroom. And when, they just, when you talk, I, I want to circle in on, on special needs kids, because I we had when I went to elementary school, there were four or five kids that I think we would say had special education. And Emma, they would be with us for some classes. The, to be honest, the fun stuff, the phys ed, sometimes the other stuff. But when it came to cracking in on on uh, deep issues of geography, like what kind of dirt is what, and the, and the Western Cordillera, that was a problem. And geometry, obtuse, acute angles, that was a problem. And I understood that we need to have a bit of a hybrid approach and the same five kids shouldn't be in the same classroom all day. But I wonder if if we if we need to flip the script back towards how it was when I went to school or you went to school. That's no, me saying we most, that. We most definitely do. Okay. I have three kids with autism in my class, uh, and I have nothing wrong with that. Yeah. There's, you know, but I have no support, so I spend my day taking kids off of tables, making sure scissors are put away, cleaning up after accidents, uh, and there's no one that comes in. So that's what I spend my a lot of my day doing, or just making sure that they're safe and happy, really not getting any of what they need, because I'm not trained. You didn't, go, you didn't go to teacher's college to babysit. Emma, you didn't go to teacher's college to babysit. You're more than that. Leo, I wanted to get to you. Thanks for the phone call and for waiting. Go right ahead. I just As I uh, just got into the parking lot here at my school and I'm, I'm hearing all these conversations, and one of the biggest conversations that uh, you know we have in our staff room often is, uh, how much we don't have enough time um, mm. to, to teach what we want to actually teach. And so what I was telling your screener was is, that, is a conversation that we've had is um, some of the subjects that we teach in the primary grades, we really don't need to teach. Um, science and, um, and I guess, social studies as their own standalone subjects are unneeded. We can include STEM activities, but we don't need to have it as a subject. Um, if we just spent more time on literacy and numeracy in the primary grades, we could apply specialized programs uh, right, right within our classrooms. And, that, and we relieve the pressure of having to have these marks for social studies and science that are really, um, you know, for grade one and two students who are still learning to read, yeah. are very difficult to, to, to do. Leo, you're, um, you're and, nailing and, it. Outside, really of, out, outside of some social interaction, that's almost all you should be doing. What grade do you teach, Leo? So I currently have a grade three, four, um, grade three, four class. And what's their reading? Grade. What's their reading level like? Give me a few sentences on what you see. Be honest. So totally honest. I walked in in September with my grade three and four class, and I had about seven non-readers. Uh, of the of the ones who could read, uh, I think we had at least uh, four or five of them that were below re where they should have been. So not reading at a grade three, not reading at a grade four level. So where we're dealing with, and and I know we're still you know reeling from the the pandemic here, um, but it's pretty evident that there's more time needed in the primary grades to actually teach reading, to teach writing, and to teach those basics. Uh, so that's my take on the whole thing. I, and, and this is not just something that I've mentioned. I have colleagues that have worked in, you know, specialized board yeah. programs. I've had colleagues that have worked in, you know, um, reading intervention programs. And, and it's constantly the same thing. We need more time in primary to teach those basics. 
You got it. Hey, Leo, uh, thank you so much for, I wish I had more time to talk with you, but thank you for doing what you're doing. And I think you're right on the money. You can't learn the other stuff if you can't write and read. You got teachers talking about geography. Well, it's, what's the capital of this province? If, if you can't spell New Brunswick, how are you supposed to know what the capital is? If you can't read the sentence of the pretext of, of the assignment you're being asked for, I mean, this is like rehabbing an injury. What do you got to do first? Get, get, throw your crutches away. Then you got to walk without a limp. Then you got to walk a, a normal distance. Then you got to jog. Then you got to run. We're not doing any of that for our kids right now. Like we aren't. And I don't know how much um, the equity teaching and, and the rest factor in, but somehow, some way, we got to the point where we said um, it's some, it's some right wing concept to teach kids the basics. No parent in their right mind is thanking school boards for pushing equity over the basics. It has to be an element. I want it to be there, but you do the basics first. You do the basics first. Linda, thank you for the phone call. Go right ahead. Hi, Linda. Hey, Linda, I'm going to move on from you. I I was hoping you'd be there. Chris, thanks for the phone call. You go ahead. Morning. I I got a couple of things to say. First of all, the, the education critic that you spoke with, one of the first couple of comments out of her mouth was the educational minister is responsible for these things. And then she said, racism and the mental health crisis. I don't know. He's a not responsible for racism. He's not going to solve it either. And he's not responsible for the mental health crisis. He didn't, he didn't create it. So anything she said beyond that was kind of thrown out. But as far as in the schools, we have to get back to basics. I've got two boys in elementary school right now and you see it and you get all this, okay, diversity training, teaching about this. It's great and all, but what about the basics? Why are we not doing more math? Why are we not doing more science? Why are we not doing mm. more reading? Um, you know, and, and even hearing, my father was a teacher, hearing that, and he was a prime, an elementary teacher as well, hearing that, okay, there's so many kids that have reading. That's kind of always been that way. I, I'm sure your parents were teachers as well. Yeah, they were. They could, yeah. they, they, they could tell you, they always had several kids that were reading below grade level. It, it, that's nothing new. Maybe the quantity of them is new, but there's always been that as a problem. But we have to get back to those basics. Chris, I'll go you one further. It, she did mention children's mental health and the crisis. Could there be any link at all with teaching that you're different from that person because of your skin color? You're this, but you're that. Could there be any link between children getting rattled at age 8, 9, and 10 because they either feel responsible for something their great-grandparent did or they, or they feel, hey, you know what, I, I want to be judged as a person. I, I, I like that's a problem. You get inside kids' brains when they're eight, nine, ten, eleven. Tell them, hey, you're different because of the way you look and where you come from. They'll respond in kind. It's ridiculous. A hundred percent. And you know, you did bring up something earlier where you know you're you're, you're funding based on and, and needs and so forth. And I said to your screener, I said, listen, what it what it's coming down to now too is you got the wealthy kids who are going to get all the opportunity because they have the wealth. That's fine. And you have. The middle class kids are kind of there, you know, parents, you're just kind of I'm middle class. You're just kind of making your way and, you know, you can afford the stuff, just afford what you can, what you can do. And then you got the lower end stuff where oh, we're going to pump a ton of funding into these guys. So everybody's equal, but you kids in the middle, we're not going to give you anything mm. extra for you to excel. You got it. You got it. I want to get one more on uh, John. You're a teacher. I got a minute for you. Go right ahead. John, go ahead, man. Hey, but how's it going? I'm great. Thank you. I think the hit the nail on the head is, why are we sending our kids to school? Are we producing the thinkers of tomorrow? Or are we producing social justice warriors? 
And I think that's a big issue with teaching nowadays. I can't even get back to the basics. I teach grade eight. Yeah. Okay. Simple. Uh, we used to do mad minute math. Simple multiplication. I don't know about you. I had to learn the multiplications by grade two, and this is grade eight. And it took them fifteen minutes with a calculator. If you could design your own curriculum for your grade eight class, how different would it be than what you teach now? Be honest. I'd be really honest with you. I I'd start right back to the basics. Um, like I always consult with my high school friends. Mm-hmm. I'm like, mm-hmm. what are you guys missing? What's going on? It's like they can't do a paragraph. God help them. They know basic multiplication. And this is the stuff that needs to happen. And if our classrooms are being hijacked by, oh, this it's 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 more social justice in schools than anything else. That's a problem. Every day is a, a, a day we gotta yeah. fight for. And I'm like. But what's going on? Like, what are we producing? Thinkers? Are we doing social justice warriors? This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. I I think we just took a lot of phone calls and so many texts about getting back to basics in education. Um, I'll say it again. Like, teachers unions, I, I think, are conflicted. And I get why. I don't think they can advocate for their members and students equally. So, and and boards struggle Boards struggle to fire incompetent teachers. That's always been a problem. It's only gotten worse. Um, but you're hearing elementary teachers just saying, we're sending kids to, to high school and we know they're not ready. High school, parent, high school teachers are saying, we're sending kids potentially to college and they're not even ready. So we could give them the marks, but they're not ready. So um, we're doing a lot of things that just aren't right right now. I'm very pleased to welcome on our next guest. I'm a big fan of her work, and I say uh, we need more like her in this particular country. Uh, Karen Vates uh, joins us right now on Toronto Today. It's great to have you back on. Um, Thank you for coming on. And yes, would you consider moving to Canada? You'll pay more in taxes, and you'll need more winter coats, um, but we're happy to have you. Greg, uh, your your too kind on that offer is so well received. Um, (laughs) You all have us completely beaten hands down on sketch comedy, and I'm a big fan. So I, I definitely could move uh, Norris very happily, um, but both of our, our fine regions need more focus on the basics when it comes to reading instruction. So we, we share that. That's our, uh, one of our bombs. It seems like parents are starting to push back a little bit, and I, I, de- I deplore the phrase... Um, culture wars but i do think if anything the last two and a half years and three years and some of that were covid restrictions with schools i think they've made all of us a little more bold measured but bold um do you think that's the case and we're starting to advocate a little more to say i'm not sure everything we did even before the pandemic with regard to education is right and we're going to push back a little bit yeah one of the clear trends we're seeing is that parents are much more savvy and asking much more precise questions about their children's literacy development. And let's face it, uh, wherever you lived for at least a few months, if you had an early reader, you were watching kindergarten and first grade reading lessons happen at the kitchen table. So a lot of parents talk about things they saw that surprised them. Um, If I had to recommend one thing that parents consider spending some time with, there's a podcast series called Sold a Story, produced by a journalist named Emily Hansford, who has been reporting on reading instruction for a lot of years. And effectively, what what Hansford did is she spoke with parents who had those aha moments about how their kids were learning to read, started to, to 
dig into more detail and saw what many of us as advocates have been trying to spotlight for a number of years, which is a shortcoming in focus on reading foundational skills. That's not the only issue with the way that reading is taught, but for parents of early readers, those, that ability to decode new words, to see a mm. word and, and understand the sounds of the English language and how they correspond to letters and letter patterns and be able to apply those skills to the words you've seen before, but more importantly, to words you've never seen before, uh, what we call decoding skills. Mm. Those are described as foundational skills because they're key foundations, and uh, that's just one of the things that is sort of underserved by most curricula in both. Yeah, and, and it's such, Karen, Karen, I heard from so many teachers this morning that said, I, I can't teach geography to kids who can't read. I can't teach World War II. I can't teach state or provincial capitals if if people can't read a sense. We had a grade one teacher call in a, a male and, and he basically said, this is all I should be doing post-pandemic is basically reading, writing, and math. That's all my curriculum should be almost. But throw some fun stuff in, of course, because they're six, but that's almost all he should be doing. And the curriculum handcuffs, it, 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 it binds his, his wrists and he can't do, the, do it that way. You know, this is a really complicated time for teachers because they mm -hmm. are getting kids that are, I mean, the average classroom always had some kids who were likely at their grade level expectations, somewhat below, somewhat above, right? But what teachers are reporting right now is a much broader range of, of skills. Um, many more kids that come in with those skill gaps, probably fewer kids that are advanced, but the average teacher is reporting just a lot more need. And so I, I do want us to, I mean, I think it's fair to have some empathy about that situation, mm -hmm. even if I, I personally wish that we hadn't had the protracted school closures that, that sort of exacerbated that. We are where we are right now. Um, at the same time, I think there's, if there's one thing that I would want parents to take away, it is what teachers are saying in terms of you, you know, we know that data shows very clearly that if a child is not reading by third grade, that child's likelihood of all kinds of adverse outcomes, first and foremost, not graduating. Secondly, you know, not ever achieving grade level standards. The risk of that is, goes dramatically up at third grade. So we really want to catch kids in those early years and get things right in those early years and pinpointing with assessments, okay, what are the skill gaps the kids are needing? Are kids struggling with decoding or is that there's something else going on? Can kids just successfully decode words, but they're missing mm. knowledge to understand what they're reading? They've got to have some oral language and vocabulary development support. Like what are the specific skill gaps is, is really key right now. Mm -hmm. And I don't, it, it is fair to say that curricula in both of our countries have not historically been as supportive as they should be of really helping teachers get to the bottom of those things and also nurturing those fundamentals for for all readers. Yeah, and so I just... It is a moment for parents to lean in. I, I, yeah, and we've got to get... I don't see that sense of urgency from boards or the teachers' unions. Um, and Karen, I, I bring this up also because kids kind of reflect adults sometimes. We don't read like we used to. We don't read as casually as we used to. You and I might be, uh, maybe we're buddies and we go away for six. We're not take. we're not, we used to pack novels. Now we'll listen to pod. You just said it. We'll listen to podcasts. We'll devour Netflix shows. We might learn a lot from documentaries or podcasts, but we're not sort of looking at the written word. And I know, and you know, nine-year-olds aren't reading novels like you and I did. They're not. So they're not keeping up to our levels. 
Yeah, it's definitely fair to say that that we've seen some cultural shifts in that regard, and and this is this is just an area for I know as a parent, I'm a mom too. It's so much. Um, I, I have a kid who does enjoy reading, but would still, all things equal, ask for that iPad if I gave her the chance, and <laughs> probably glue herself to it for the day. But it is so important, particularly in those early reading years, for us as parents and for schools to be nurturing those early reading skills because there is, it's not just that risk goes up if you're not successfully reading by third grade. It's also what you point to around, you know, we talk about, we talk about sort of early knowledge being like Velcro, right? And successfully develop as a reader. Then as you go on in years, your success in every other realm is going to be down to your ability to read. You can't do math successfully if you can't do word problems by the fifth or sixth grade. So Getting the reading part right and leaning in as a parent, whatever that takes, is you know, this is a good moment for us to talk about the importance of that. I know it is. Uh, visit our website, uh, eduvates.org, E-D-U-V-A-I-T-E-S.org. I could always talk to you for longer. We've got to have you back on more because we need more people like you up here. Thank you so much for the time this morning. Thanks, Greg. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. What are we doing to solve the housing problem? And can we house all the people we want to bring and welcome to Canada because we need it for labor? There is a little bit of a vicious circle. Uh, Smart guy. I like talking with him about it. Uh, Professor of economics at uh, Waterloo University, University of Waterloo, the Warriors, uh, is Mikhail Scuderud. Uh, Thank you very much for the time this morning. It's great having you back on. Thanks for having me, Greg. We're probably no further along in finding solutions. You might even be watching, you know, the Toronto mayoral race with some interest. But at the end of the day, I think everybody provincially, federally, municipally, uh, Professor, has to be in the same boat here about accomplishing these goals, supply meeting demand. And and I'm not sure we're any further along than we were a few months ago about these conversations. So you mean in terms of the housing market? Yeah, yeah. Just just getting starts and developing, putting shovels in ground in the ground to make sure that people coming to Canada who we want to work with us and for us have homes. Yeah. So my impression is that the major bottleneck is really the the regulations that happen at the the municipal level. Mm-hmm. So you know, there's if there is a shortage, it means that there's money to be made for developers to build new houses. The only thing I can see that's keeping developers from ha- from doing that is is not a labor shortage because. You look at the data, that, that just is not there. It's not in the data. Real wages of trades workers in the construction industry are falling in Canada. That's not consistent with a labor shortage. So the, the most reasonable explanation I see are just zoning regulations that are in, in place within municipal governments. Um, and that, that those are those are longstanding issues. That That's nothing new. There was a great example in um, Stouffville last week, and I was able to reference it for, for several minutes where there was going to be a housing start like a like a sort of a, a, an apartment complex that was about six floors, but it was going to have about 100, 105 units. Then people complained and, and walked it. And so the, the, the city walked it back and said, OK, we'll zone it for 60 units. 
They complained. More people complained. Then they got it down to 32 units. And so many people made the point. This sort of, you know, this is death by a thousand cuts. And this is why we end up falling behind at different times, because, you know, community I won't call them activists, but people in neighborhoods has, have so much access to their to their counselor. They have so much access to municipal government. Um, they'll meet them for lunch. It's hard. That's hard to do with an MP or an MPP. And they get this access and, and they're able to to get these housing starts pushed downward. I, I think you just nailed it. I can't say it any better. I, I see it in my own neighborhood. There was a, an empty lot down the street and, and the neighbors around it. And the, the, the intention was for it to be higher density housing. But then, of course, all the people in the big single homes start to worry about lower income people moving into their neighborhood and bring, you know, pulling down the values of their houses. And so they lobby the municipal government, municipal council, um, not to approve the zoning change. And, and it gets turned down. I mean, this is, happens over and over and over. And it isn't a new phenomenon. Um, this has been going on for, for years and years and years. And I, I think there's little doubt in my mind that, that that's a huge part of the, the challenge. You're seeing students right now, I'm sure, who, you know, they're, they're born uh, they're born in this century. And now I'd say in the last 10 years, we've seen a big push and especially from the Ford government get into the trades. Monty McDonald, the labor minister, has I, I give him credit. They've been very consistent with the campaign. The messaging has been on point. And, and I think it's increased the amount of people who have, have demanded like you can ma- start making some money when you're 21, 22. Do we keep going along these roads here? I don't think it minimizes the degree you have or that I have or that or that, you know, a student at Waterloo or wherever is going to get this spring. But at the same time, do we have the proper balance here? You've described it before as we don't have a scarcity of labor. It's a scarcity of capital. Those are two very different distinctions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for me, you know, it's really hard to know whether there is a genuine labor shortage in any labor market, whether it's, you know, construction or anything else, the, the best indicator you're going to have is, is probably not to ask employers whether or not they're facing labor shortages, whether they're having troubling, trouble finding workers, um, because they sort of have an idea of what they would like to pay those workers. So my analogy is, is if you come along and ask me, you know, is there a shortage of $5 champagne, Mikhail? I'd say absolutely there is. Right? <laughs> I want more $5 champagne. But the, the question really is, you know, are you paying workers enough to attract them? And so the most important thing for me is to look at what is happening to wages in those sectors. And if there's evidence of wage increases, that to me says the markets are tight, that, that there really are genuine shortages. Real wages, in, as I said before, in this industry, construction, tradespeople in construction in Canada are falling. They're falling. That's not at all consistent with trying to attract new workers into this sector. So I, I struggle with that. It just doesn't show up for me in the data. You put a graph out that I wanted to ask you about, and I, I hope if, as I describe it, you'll recall it, but I'm fascinated by it, and I should have advanced it to you, but you put the employment rate of Canadian seniors out. And and even 55 to 64, so sort of pre-seniors, but coming to the end of, of uh, I guess, what you and I would call the, the grind, you know, being employed for 35, 40 years. It, it's a historic high. What is it about that age group and that demographic that, um, it, like back, I'll give an example, in 1990, 46% of people 55 to 64 were employed. Well, now it's about 66%. That's, a, that's hundreds of thousands of Canadians who are in their late 50s, in their early 60s, and they're still working full-time. 
What's the reason? So a big part of that, and I probably should have done that, Greg, is, is separate those numbers by gender, by men and women. So a big part of it for sure is that you've got this cohort of women that, you know, they were born in the say, 1950s. They're sort of entering that age, maybe in the 1960s. And, and so they, they were working throughout their life. These are what we call cohort effects. And so they're reaching that old part of their life. But these people always worked. But that's going to tend to pull up those numbers in that particular age group mm-hmm. because their mothers didn't work, but they do. And so it's a, it may be a little bit misleading, although it's, it's correct that a higher percentage are working. We're going to see this cascading effect, Greg. So whether you're looking at 55 to 65, if I talk to you in 10 years and we look at 65 to 75, you're going to see the same thing. Employment rates of older Canadians are going up. That's partly that women, you know, we've got these cohorts of women that have always worked and their mothers didn't. But it's also that people are living longer. Their jobs are different. You know, there are a lot more desk jobs out there that are conducive to working when you when your back hurts and you're getting old. Um, there's a lot of people who are healthier, right? Um, so we're going to be seeing this. This is the reality. This is the new future that we are going to be working longer than, than our parents and our grandparents did. That's just the reality. I'm so glad you made that awesome point. Yeah, we're living longer. Our health is better. We take care of ourselves more. This is often that distinction I make with the trades is you can get into it and make some great money. You sure can. But you also, it's like a pro athlete in a way. You've got to take care of yourself. You've got to preserve that body because you're putting that body. You get on somebody's roof. Um, in you know 93 degree temperatures you better preserve that body you better be well hydrated and able to sustain a summer where you're roofing or you're painting and and not everybody is but these desk jobs yeah you can do them till you're 70 there's financial advisors who are 75 76 years old because they love it (laughs) you just nailed it that's it and and the reality is of course that you know as we get more technological change that you know, new automation that replaces a lot of these jobs that have repetitive tasks, that a larger share of the overall work in the population that we're doing is those kinds of desk jobs um, that aren't just repetitive tasks, that, that requires to think a little bit more. And you're right, that, that's going to allow people to work longer. Mikhail Scooter, great stuff. Really, really enjoy our conversations. Thanks so much for this. Um, and, and you're doing it during exam season. So I appreciate that. I know that. Thanks very much for the time today. Thanks, Greg. Have a good day. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. I want to welcome on uh, MPP for Scarborough Guildwood, but also, as importantly, more importantly, these next several weeks, mayoral candidate for the city of Toronto. She is Mitzi Hunter. Mitzi, it's a pleasure having you back on the show. Thanks for making the time. Hi, Greg. Good morning. It's wonderful to join you again to talk about this really important issue that doesn't really get a lot of attention, I think, in the right way. Uh, We need to let people who are at risk of homelessness or who are experiencing homelessness know that we see them. And I, 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 I really want people to know that I see you. We need to do something. This is a crisis. We know that housing is a crisis. People are falling off that housing ladder and, and falling into homelessness, and we've got to do something about this. So you laid out a $100 million, um, something called a housing stability fund. Um, what does the money, uh, how does the money manifest itself, and, and why is that the number? Where will it go to? 
Yeah, so this is uh, this is going to tackle this issue of homelessness. We're going to set benchmarks to track our progress. We want to end chronic homelessness in Toronto. We want to be a world-class city. This is something that we really need to make sure that we do carefully. And so the, my um, $100 million fund is about housing stability. It's about making sure that reduced homelessness, we increase housing stability, and we raise mental wellness as well, which is often a factor in homelessness. I, I've been talking to nurses, I've been talking to people uh, who work with, with people with mental wellness issues, and they're telling me that this is a big factor, and if we can address this and give people the help and support that they need, we'll have less people on our streets, in our parks, and on our transit system who are homeless. People probably will make the case that big cities will always have people without homes, but there's there's something different. You see it and I see it. And I think any of our listeners do see it. It, it, You go to Chicago, New York, Los Angeles. That's probably um, going to be a a factor, but it's just the, the numbers are exponential in terms of growth of people who need help somewhere along the way. Yeah, homelessness is at record levels. It's reaching, in fact, in February of this year, it reached the highest level on record. And our shelter system is just beyond capacity. So the status quo is is not acceptable here in Toronto. We need this plan. I have a three-point plan to reduce homelessness, to increase housing stability, and to to raise the support uh, for people who, who really need it from our healthcare system. And, and this is about, you know, taking immediate action and uh, addressing those things, as well as um, longer-term approaches that will take some time. Uh, we want to increase the number of supportive housing units. So those are places that people live, and they also have the support next to them so that they can maintain stability in their lives. Mitzi Hunter's our guest on Toronto Today. Someone will hear the $100 million and say, if we're getting $100 million into that, which is which is beneficial, where does the $100 million get taken away from? Or does that mean we're raising more revenue in other ways? How would you explain where we get to that amount of money? Well, Greg, you know, I'm, I will provide a fully costed plan for all of the proposals that I'm putting forward. And that's something that I, I've committed to doing for my campaign. Uh, what what I am looking at as well as we invest in these areas is providing people the help and support in a planned and managed way. Oftentimes, we have emergency money that's, you know, going to provide, you know, police officers on transit because we feel that safety is an issue. Yet, if we did things in a more planful way, it's actually a more cost-effective way to do that in the first place. Certainly, the federal and the provincial government have a responsibility. Certainly, the province for health care needs uh, for people. Oftentimes, transfer payments need to, to be um, properly processed so people have resources that they're actually entitled to, but they just don't have the support in order to organize that in their lives. Mitzi Hunter's our guest on Toronto Today. All right, Ontario Place. I, I agree. I think you laid this out, and I said it on the air um, Friday. So it uh, it's not, you know, it's not a um, universally independent opinion that we're getting a little bit into the weeds on Ontario Place and that there's been a little too much air, hot and cold air about it. But, but Doug Ford is going to make an announcement at 1 o'clock. I think people read into this, Mitzi, to think that the die was already cast and there was a plan way before John Tory even vacated, it would seem like, to move the Ontario Science Centre downtown. How do you view it? 
Well, if there was a plan, it was secret because no one's talked to the people in Thorncliffe Park and Flemington Park in the Don Mills area. You know, what, what's really disappointing about this is that we can do better, uh, Greg. We can do better for the people of, of this community. Um, the Science Centre is so treasured in that area because it's, it's one of the few things. Did you know that Flemington Park only has one soccer pitch, which is located in a hydro field? This community lacks public space. It lacks public parks and green space and places for the community to gather. So if we were going to do something in this community, why not make the investment at a time when we have a renaissance with the Ontario line plan planned for the future and the Eglinton Crosstown about to open? Why hasn't it even opened already? We don't know. That's a question we need to ask Metrolink. But, you know, this is a community that lacked investment for many, many years. They're finally getting better transit, and now we're taking away the one thing that they have that provided you know, a lift, an attraction, economic activity, jobs. And, you know, what is the vision? We really don't know. And, you know, I believe that the government owes it to this neighborhood to to have a conversation and to say, how are we going to invest in this community and why are they taking away the one thing they have, which is the Ontario Science Center? Well, you also know, like when when people are going to, um, I'll use the term, schlep downtown uh, with young kids, that's a thing. And you also know um, times are tight for uh, schools and when it comes to budgeting a field trip. In Scarborough, in in uh, in Rouge, in Pickering, the Science Center was a lot more convenient than going to the aquarium or going to a Jays game. Those are great things also. Uh, absolutely, they are. But I think ripping this out of this area here, you nailed it with in terms of transit, and you nailed it in terms of schools from Markham and beyond, like within a 20K radius, looked at the Science Center and said, that's an affordable place to go. That's where we'll take our kids. And then it's gone. And it really matters, Greg. You know, I talk to teachers and educators, and and it's challenging when you're coming, you know, and that's why I'm running to be mayor of this city. I want to bring the outside in. You know, places like Scarborough and all around outside of the core, they do feel left out, left out in terms of amenities and investments. And, you know, some of those are coming now with transit. But why not use the planning power and the brain power we have in this city to say, how do we make this neighborhood and this community great? Yes, we need more housing. And I have said, use the parking area. For more housing density, it's right on the transit routes. That makes sense. But why take away the Science Center and the Mm. public park? Not to mention it's built on a ravine and, you know, goes right down into the Don Don Valley. So, you know, like there's an environmental piece to this as well. I think these these guys need to give their heads a shake. They need to Mm. put the time and the resource into these neighborhoods uh, outside of the core so that we can have the best planning and the best amenities across our city. Mm. And, you know, that's why I have um, my four four tests. You know, is it public access? Is it affordable? Do we have, you know, uh, attractive and beautiful spaces? And have we consulted the community to make sure that we're investing in all Mm. parts of this city? Uh, I got about a minute left, and I I don't want to play the uh, well people are saying or some critics say. So I'll, I'll ask a direct question: um, Are you going to resign your seat? Do you have a date for this? Um, because people, again, I don't want to play the people will say card, but it is out there that uh, how committed is she to being mayor if she's still holding that seat? When will you resign your your provincial seat? Uh, listen, I have skin in the game. I'm the only one that has to resign my seat. <laughs> 
in order to run in this election. And yes, I will resign my seat by the cutoff, which is May 12th. Okay. Okay. So, okay. Nothing, uh, nothing pending, nothing this week, nothing next week. Well, you know, I, like I've been elected as the MPP for Scarborough Guildwood. I've been a champion for my community. I want to be a champion for Toronto. I also need to make sure that I transition that office well. Yeah. You know, there's so, so many aspects to that. And, uh, and I'm going to do that. But I'm, I'm committed to this city, Greg. That's why I'm in this race. I'm in it to win it. And I want to make sure that Toronto is the best city in the world. Mm. That, and we want to demand more of our leaders in terms of the investments that we're making and the future of our city. And that's why I'm in it to win it because everyone deserves. And you know, this city in fact, needs a revival and we need a city that works for everyone. And that's why I'm in this race to be mayor of Toronto. Mitzi and, Hunter. And you know what? Yeah. A, vote, a vote for Mitzi is a vote for the Ontario science center staying where it is, but getting more investment and working better for everyone. Let's, let's see what uh, the Premier announces today, and let's certainly be able to follow up on it later in the week because I know how passionate you are about it. Thanks for the time today. I got a blast, but I appreciate you coming on. Thanks so much.